You're about to listen to a true story told live because this is True Stories Live. Brought to you by LJ Hope Productions, Norwich Arts Centre and me, Molly Naylor. Thank you very much. Um, I was going to frame this as a life imitating art story, but I don't know if that's really true. What is true is there's an art bit at the beginning and then a life bit at the end, and they happened in that order. So the art bit is a couple of years ago, I wrote a play, which is what I do, I'm a playwright. And uh, the play was about historical abuse at a military boarding school in Scotland. And it was terrible. It didn't come together, because some plays don't. And all I got out of it were a few good lines, the best of which was, those who claim that being beaten as a child never did them any harm are merely advertising the harm that being beaten as a child did to them. That's the art bit. I went to a military boarding school in Scotland from 1980 to 1985. Um, and it's a unique place. It's the only school in the country which is entirely funded and run by the Ministry of Defence. Um, and I was going to go into detail about what that means, but I think if you ask yourself, I wonder what it'd be like if the army ran a school and just kind of run with that thought. It was exactly like that. Um, and it looked great in the prospectus. It was all pipe bands and red tunics and kilts and running around the highlands with guns. Um, and there was a fair bit of that, but there was also corporal punishment and sadistic alcoholic masters and endemic bullying and an awful lot of that. Um, but it was kind of a big deal to go there. They didn't take officers' kids. We all had a parent in the enlisted ranks. And uh, they paid for everything. There were no fees. Once you were in, you kind of felt an obligation to make it work. And if you knuckled down and accepted the discipline, then you would walk out into a career in the armed forces, which about 80% of the boys did, because they'd basically been in the armed forces since they were 10. Um, but I didn't. I didn't knuckle down. I didn't accept the discipline because the discipline came in the form of the belt. Now, the belt wasn't a belt. It was a strap of leather about that long, about that thick. had a handle at one end. It was split about halfway up its length. And you took it across your palms. And it was a vicious punishment. You got six of the best. And it would raise welts. Um, You'd be left with an imprint for an hour afterwards. Blood bl blisters, bruises. It was a brutal thing, which was, you know, the point. Once you'd encountered it, you didn't want to repeat the trick. And uh, in their time there, most of the boys were belted maybe four or five times. Um, by the time I left, I'd been belted over a hundred times, which was by some distance a school record. Uh, because I was a school anarchist, and I'd like to say it's because I was defiant, but, you know, it was just my thing. I was ill-disciplined, and the more they beat me, the more ill-disciplined I became. 
um, and then at the age of 15, they expelled me, which is quite hard to do, you know, at a military school, so I won. Um, and that's, that's the way I told the story for years afterwards. And I was, you know, the Randall McMurphy of my school, the school anarchist. And then I became an adult and I had other stories to tell and I stopped really thinking about my school days until a long time later, when I was in my 40s. And I was in a relationship and my partner had four small, beautiful children. And the idea of those kids being beaten in that way was so, you know, obscene, so unimaginable, that it made me think about my own school days. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't compute, you know, I couldn't reconcile the two. Uh, and I, I needed a more honest story. Because it's, it's no good saying it was a different time. Because it wasn't, it was the 80s. Madonna was already a thing. It wasn't, you know, that long ago. So, this train of thought started with a, a single question about the belt. And the question was, what was it? Because it wasn't a belt. But it also seemed self-evident that it wasn't something that had been designed for grown-ups to hit children with. That seemed weird. So I went online and uh, I found it very quickly. It's called the Lockgelly Tours. It's made by a saddle maker in Fife and its original purpose was for grown-ups to hit children with. It was invented for that reason and they sold thousands of them and they still sell a small number today, although corporal punishment has been illegal for 30 years. Um, and I found an interview with the current proprietor, Mrs. Margaret Dick, and uh, <laughs> she says her clientele now are mostly retired school teachers looking for a memento of their past. Um, and I read that and thought, and the S&M scene, surely, <laughs> Mrs. Dick. Um, which is fine, obviously, you know, what consenting adults get up to, but I just thought, come on, Mrs. Dick. <laughs> wake the fuck up um, and so I had a bee in my bonnet then and I went on Facebook I found a group dedicated to pupils from my school ex-pupils and I joined it uh, searched my own name obviously and the first post that came up was a story about the day I was expelled when the headmaster chased me round and round the parade ground uh, before I mooned him dived in a taxi and sped off yeah, it's a great story, except it never happened. It's yeah, not a word of truth in it. But I was, I was kind of pleased that that, you know, Randall McMurphy was still out there. But also, I'm not 15, and I was looking for, you know, an honest story to tell. So I tried. I tried really hard for perhaps the first time in my, my life to remember actually what it was like. And what I remember is a culture of violence, top to bottom. Boys, masters, legitimate, illegitimate, uh, whether it was implicitly or explicitly endorsed, we lived under the shadow of that violence every day. And we were scared and we were angry. 
and fear and anger had been, you know, destabilizing characteristics of my life subsequently, and I was done with them. And there were plenty of things I'd forgotten. They didn't expel people, but I'd forgotten about the boys who went home for the holidays and never came back. I'd forgotten about the boys who ran away, the boys who self-harmed, the boys who climbed onto the balcony at the top of the school and tried to throw themselves off. And I remember one boy who'd been driven up there by a campaign of homophobic bullying. And I remember we all got the mats, the gym mats, underneath him. And I remember the other boys, the older boys, walking around going, jump, and thinking it was the funniest thing ever. Because I was as bad as anyone else. I was just more reckless. So when I came up with a homophobic slur, it was about the alpha bully of our year. And I made sure I repeated it in his presence. And he sat about me and broke two of my fingers. And what I chiefly remember about that is the pride I took in not dobbing him in. Because I would have been a bully too. I just wasn't any good at it. When I was there for about three years, a new boy joined, and I had to take him to the kit room. And on the way there, simply because he was a new boy, I turned and I punched him in the head. And he looked at me and said, why'd you do that? And I said, I don't know. And we became quite good friends after that. So I remembered all this stuff, and I wanted a more compassionate story to tell. So I went looking for some of these people. I started with the bully, the boy who broke my fingers, because I figured maybe, you know, he wasn't a psychopath. He was just another messed up kid trying to survive that environment. And I found him quite quickly because he'd been in the papers. And in the papers, he was always referred to as Scotland's fattest inmate. And... Uh, I, I know, shoes on the other foot. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I should explain the reason he was in prison was because for many years he'd controlled the heroin trade in Port Glasgow and he was a serial rapist um, who preyed on the addicts he exploited. So, yeah, no compassion there. Um, sometimes people are exactly what they appear to be. So I went looking for the boy that I'd bullied, and I found him quite quickly, and I sent him a message on Facebook, and I said, look, I don't know if you remember this, but I tried bullying you, uh, and I shouldn't have done that. You were a new boy, I should have offered you a hand of friendship, and I believe in making amends, and I'm sorry. I hope you can forgive me. And he wrote a message back to me saying, look, I don't remember it, but of course I forgive you. I remember you being bullied. I hope I wasn't part of that. I hope you can forgive me. And we sent messages back and forth. And we forgave each other. And we forgave ourselves. And it was beautiful. It was bloody lovely and redemptive. And that's where this story should end. Except two months ago, the Smith Inquiry, which is investigating historical abuse in Scottish institutions, announced that it was opening hearings into my school, and that's the life bit. And of course the Facebook group blew up and people were saying it made me the man I am today and it was character building and, and a really weird line which was I saw nothing. 
I was there 80 to 86, I saw nothing. 93 to 99, saw nothing. Which is evidence, obviously, of nothing. I haven't seen Forrest Gump. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. <laughs> but among these posts, there were other posts, and I have no right to repeat them, but they had a very different tone, they were much more articulate, and they invariably ended, and I know this happened because it happened to me, and I hope those people go to the inquiry, and I hope they give evidence and get the justice they deserve, because what happened to them were crimes. And then right at the end, there was a comment from a name I couldn't place for a while, and then I remembered it was the boy who'd climbed up on the balcony, and he said he was going to go and give evidence, not about any particular person, not about any particular instance, but about the culture and how damaging it was. And I hope he does. And if he does, I would be happy for him to speak for me. Because I don't know what I'm going to do. I think, no, I know I'm going to the hearings. But as things stand, I think I'd just like to go and listen. Thank you. Ian Gadoot! Thank you, Ian. True Stories Live is a story show and story finding project brought to you by LJ Hope Productions, Norwich Arts Centre and me, Molly Naylor. For more information about all of the work that we do, head to our website truestorieslive.co.uk.